0: Hi, you're listening to On Israel in Almonitor. I'm Ben Kaspir from Tel Aviv. After 11 days of fighting on two fronts, a ceasefire went into effect in the very early hours of Friday, and a tense calm has been restored. Unlike Israel's clashes with its Arab neighbors over the past 20 years, this time Israel was forced to deal with two fronts at the same time. In addition to the cyclical clashes with Hamas in Gaza, which periodically sent half the Israeli population running for shelter, this time Israel also had to deal with vicious violence between some of its Jewish and Arab citizens. For the first time in this young country's history, Arab, Arabs burned several synagogues and dozens of cars owned by Jews. Jewish residents of mixed towns were seen removing the mezuzahs from the door frames of their homes to prevent attacks by an Arab mob. Some fled their home in terror. When Jewish mobs started retaliating, Israel seemed on the verge of anarchy. The police was caught by surprise and took several long days to realize the extent of the chaos, to beef up its forces, and to restore order. As usual, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Defense Minister Gantz declared victory over Hamas in Gaza but Israelis are trying to come to terms with the shocking violence that swept through the Jewish-Arab towns of Lod, Akr, Haifa, and many other places, as well as southern Israel, where the Bedouin minority lives. The violence was particularly shocking after more than a year of unprecedented Arab-Jewish cooperation against the coronavirus, and after a right-wing prime minister seemed to be clearing the way for Arab participation in government for the first time in Israeli history. No one expected the intense anger that swept through the country, exposing tensions, suspicions, and even hatred on both sides of the Arab Jewish divide. Today's guest will help us look at the events from the other side. Orit Perlov studies uh, social media in the Arab world. She has worked for the Foreign Ministry, serving in the Israeli Embassy in Amman as a policy advisor on the Gulf states and as a co editor of the ministry's public diplomacy website in Arabic. Over the past decade, Perlov has been a research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies, monitoring sentiments of Israel's Muslim neighborhoods. She is in close t- touch with Palestinians, Egyptians, Lebanese, Syrians, Jordanians, Libyans, and Tunisians providing her with a unique understanding of the underlying trends in their societies and of the chances of dialogue with Israel. Our guest today will try to help us delve deeper into these issues in order to try to understand how Israel's Arab neighbors view the bloody military clashes of recent days and compare the different perceptions of reality in each side of the fence. Join us right after this short break.
1: If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including The Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region Based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting, and if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform. On Israel with Ben Caspit, and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti.
0: Now I'm glad uh, to say hello and shalom to uh, my friend and colleague Orit Perlov. How are you, Orit?
2: Hi Ben, very well, very well. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, Thank you for joining us and let's uh, dive into the very busy agenda here in the Middle East, especially Israel against uh, Gaza. Uh, Israel within itself with uh, the Arab Israelis and you are a a, a specialist in uh, what we call uh, media, uh, social media, social networks of the Arab world and I want to ask you uh, the following. Many Israelis are saying that our intelligence was uh, faulty and as a result we failed to see uh, that Hamas was preparing for war and that Israeli Arabs would turn on Jews at the height of their honeymoon with Jewish society, from your perspective and what you see on the other other side, was the writing on the wall?
2: So I have to quiet all these noises because after ten years uh, following the trends on social media and following the Palestinian discourse on social media, I can tell you that the 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 writing wasn't on the wall. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody in Gaza knew that something like that is going to erupt. I can tell you that even now they're surprised that it happened. I mean, everybody thought, let's say let's, let's say that on Saturday, like two days before we even started, they just paid salaries to all the um, government officials. Everything seems like it's normal. Uh, when I asked Gazans before that, do we see anything? Is Hamas is going to join? So they told me they'll try to do something in the West Bank. They might try to incite something in Jerusalem, but nobody dreamt that something like that. That Hamas is preparing for an operation within Gaza, and it was surprise. And I can tell you that I I fo- followed other operation before. The people with inside Gaza always knew that something is, you know, is in the making. They always told me, you know, there's some signs of unrest and so on. This time, you surprise. surprised. So not only by the intelligence of the military, not only by probably other security forces. I had kind of evaluation uh, forum maybe three days before it happened. Everybody, all the security forces and intelligence never predict that something like that would have happened. Because everybody thought that it's not only thought, but everybody wanted the status quo to continue. Gazans doesn't want another cycle of violence because they always get, you know, they're always the one who need to pay for the very high price of what's happening in Gaza. So the answer is no. Uh, so, so I want, I want to,
0: to follow up on this because yeah. uh, uh, maybe half an hour ago, I, I was I had a, very, a deep background uh, conversation with a very senior mi- military uh, uh, official uh, in the IDF and he told me mm-hmm. that even Hamas didn't plan to get to a, to, to this kind of, of a clash with the, with the IDF. And exactly like you said here, they saw the, the opportunity in Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, in in the in Damascus, Al-Aqsa. in Al Aqsa, and they, they they said to, them to themselves, we will uh, shoot uh, uh, or launch five or six rockets to Jerusalem. IDF will uh, will attack us once or twice, and we'll be back in business. It but but they were wrong. Here. Wrong. Did do, did yeah. you see this as well from the from the other side?
2: So the answer is yes, I can tell you even now, they're surprised. I mean, it was something that was, what's happening now? I mean, I can tell you that there was a lot of disconnection even between the military wing and what's coming outside that everybody was confused. This is the first thing I think, I can't say it was spontaneous. I don't believe it was hundred percent spontaneous, you know, an act of spontaneous throwing missiles on Jerusalem and thinking that, okay, it will, continue one day or two and it will end. Um, Because this is a huge miscalculation, if so. And I usually don't give the enemy, you know, I don't think they're stupid. (laughs) Um, But maybe they thought that they will ask for a ceasefire very soon and everybody will agree, because even Israel doesn't, they know we cannot achieve anything. So everybody will want to finish it as soon as possible. but I can tell you, uh, uh, citizens-wise, Gazans-wise, it was a huge shock on the population. Nobody supported it. Everybody called for the halt of the aggression. Everybody, you know, the screaming and everything was very much evident during this uh, 11 or 12 day of of, uh, of operation and i think it's the first time that it cut, it's cut it caught the you know the citizen by surprise 100% and
0: nobody the,
2: thought about
0: yeah and how how did the violence with the with gaza and within israel play out on the other side on our side we're talking about uh, you know, the military uh, uh, personnel and the leaders, political leaders, talking about the goals of the operation, deterrence, bringing down uh, buildings, bombing tunnels and, uh, and taking out Hamas leaders. What was the other side talking about? And is there a, a, a sense of an Arab victory over Israel? Uh, so
2: let's start with the first question. I would divide it for two. One, you have an army of, you know, a kind of on Twitter, that the only job or mission they have is to, one is, you know, to record everything, to archive everything that happened in Gaza. They feel that there is a genocide taking place, that Israel is trying to cleanse the Palestinians and to, what do you mean, to kill? I mean, you know, kill everybody in Gaza. Um, and they need to document, to archive the uh, destruction, the, de- the death of people. They don't have what they calling Yad Vashem. So they feel that they, their offices is on, online and they need to archive and document the horror of what's happening in Gaza. So you have an army of people within Gaza that they, their sole mission is to archive and document everything that happens during the operation. The other part that you can see very much uh, taking place in the discourse is just kind of, uh, and I would say that it started, you know, there, you have an army of, of trying to, um, I would say, uh, frame the narrative, which is extremely important to them, for them, you know, usually the narrative is being um, kind of the one who's, the powerful is the one who's in charge of the narrative, not the truthful. And for them, even though they're not the powerful, they want to dictate the narrative. And therefore, during the the operation, there was like a a, a kind of tweet of war who was in charge to frame what's happening and dictate the narrative, which is, it is a genocide from one side. Israel is, you know, doing a, a kind of war crimes and they want to change the language of the reported uh, the reported uh, the reporters uh, the foreign reporters they wanted everybody to talk about genocide about cleansing about war crime and not about operation and uh, you know uh, terrorist attacks and stuff like that so that's the second thing that we saw a lot of hashtags were for hashtags and so on and the third people who just uh, uploaded video who's showing the destruction, kind of, I-, I want to sleep. There's no light outside, it's so dark, uh, I'm afraid. A lot of kind of very uh, authentic voices who describe the, the horror, the fear, a lot of pictures and videos. We have F-16, they have kids as a weapon. So usually they put online a lot of pictures of kids that her par- their parents got killed Kids that their home got, you know, destroyed. Kids in the hospital next to their brothers and sister who's got injured, and that was very much evident online during the operation.
1: This Regarding
0: the second, it,
2: what?
0: It's amazing. It's like uh, the two sides are actually living in a total parallel universes, exactly. talking uh, uh, not the same Different language, and each other sees are the the, the same events in a completely different uh, light.
2: Absolutely. And that brings us to your second question regarding whether they see us as, you know, if we saw all the celebration online and how people in Gaza, in Jerusalem, in the Arab street celebrated the victory, even in the Dachia in Lebanon, they celebrated the victory of the resistance. So we need to ask ourselves, did, do they really think they won? So the answer is yes and no. First of all, Gaza is an open-air prison. And for them, survival, sometimes when you live in a ghetto, you. What, I mean, and I'm giving their narrative, right? Uh-huh. Once you survive it, you won. Think about it. You, they don't have shelters. They don't have sirens. They don't have iron Dome. They have nothing. Um, they don't even have windows some of the houses from the last operation so um, the the fact the fact that they stayed alive for them it's a you know winning of life over death so that's one way to to look at it we have we're the you know the powerful so for us winning is something completely different I would say that it's a little bit, even problematic. When we see the picture in Gaza of the destruction of people coming out of the, you know, dead bodies coming out of the rab- rebel, you see 50% of, of the water channels destroyed, 50%, no electricity, maybe two to four hours of electricity now in Gaza. Half of Gaza City with no internet. And we are like, celebrate, we won, we have achievement, we have, it's a little bit, I would say there's, um, you know, don't celebrate or dance when your enemy is like falling. When Gazans see what's happening, you know, the day after, all they is destruction. They don't fool themselves. They do win the fact that they stayed alive. And I always say, you know, in psychology, the rule number one, when you scream, I won, you're usually the loser. Because when yeah. you win, there's no need to scream about it. It's obvious. <laughs> We, we usually scream we won, we achieved when there is a debate usually regarding what did we achieve, did we really won. So I would say that the first one who scream I win is usually the one who lost the war.
0: So uh, and right now, while we are speaking, uh, yesterday, Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, say we will not see Yahya Sanwar for a long time now. Yeah. And the, the day after, on Saturday, Yehi Senwar came out in Gaza and, yeah, how, hugged how and it, kissed uh, all the heroes. Yeah, he
2: went they,
0: to a funeral. Yeah, yeah and, and I wanted to ask you, uh, and we're also seeing the, the wild Palestinian celebrations in Jerusalem and elsewhere after the ceasefire. How can they think? That their side has won when the residents of Gaza are uh, experiencing such deep suffering and tremendous damage that you just spoke about, why the damage to property and the loss of life in Israel has been so limited in comparison. And my question is, maybe they don't measure the loss of life and, and property, but they saw, they're seeing that Hamas became may be the only power uh, within the Palestinian society. Uh, Abu Mazen is, uh, I think, uh, Not really, in no. his weakest point ever. Hamas was able to spoil Jerusalem Day, a Knesset a meeting, a shoot on the capital of Israel, etc., etc. So they see this, these symbols as, as a victory.
2: You know, I, I'll tell you that I, I, one, I don't think that our logic and their logic is the same. It doesn't mean that it's not rational, but it's a different kind of rational. So for them, again, they're the weak link in this uh, in this war. And for them, one is the population. Again, not I'm not the spokesperson of Hamas, but um, one, the, if they, say, they said, okay, first of all, there was missiles on Jerusalem. Second, for 18, 18 days, it wasn't allowed for any Jew to go on the Temple Mount. A uh, third, uh, they put, you know, Sh- Tel Aviv in shelters, and everybody listened to what Muhammad, the messages of Muhammad Def and uh, Abu Bayd, you know, the spokesperson of yeah. uh, Azadine El Kassam, and Tel Avivian were like half of them with family ran to the north. Some of them from six o'clock in the afternoon waited at home because we didn't want to be catched outside while there are sirens and so on. So, you know, uh, they can put, depends on what you see as a winning, but most of the population, I survived another operation, I won. You know, I came out of the ghetto alive, I won. I mean, it's like the winning of life or for death, I think, the, for the population. Uh, for nobody supporting, I can tell you there is a very weak support for Hamas. I mean, we think about Abbas, but I can also tell you that in 2019 there was almost a, a rebellion within the the refugees camp in uh, in Gaza in March uh, 19. In which most of the refugees camp had a kind of rebellion against Hamas because of they were hungry, and they saw that most of the money that they get from Qatar are not getting into the poor neighborhoods, but only for you know, for Hamas officials. So yes, they are more popular than the pa uh, but they're it's yet- not so
0: uh, difficult to be.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because once, if, usually, when you don't rule so much, you usually yeah. you don't have so much responsibility, and they don't need to coordinate so much with us. But uh, in general, they, they are very. They are also in a very weak point. You know, I, I was asking people in Gaza, so they told me that the story is that Abbas is extremely weak. That's why he declared election. Then Hamas tried to kidnap, you know, it from uh, from Abbas because they are extremely weak, so they needed to do something to be more popular. So they throw the rockets on Jerusalem, and then Bibi, that he's having another election, stole it from Sinwar and from Abbas. So they try to tell me that it's all politics, that all of them are extremely weak. Maybe the they're right. Uh, you
0: know, <laughs> Maybe it is. I,
2: I, I didn't tell them that I think they're wrong. <laughs> I can tell you. But, uh, uh, by the way, it would be very
0: them. interesting uh, for you to follow now the situation of Hamas within uh, refugee camps in Gaza because the situation is not going to be better, uh, but worse. I think it is going to be worse. And uh, I heard yeah. from uh, military chiefs and the uh, uh, political leaders in Israel, that uh, they will reconsider uh, the, the getting the, the Qatar money inside with, this, you know, the suitcases of money with the mm-hmm. Qatari uh, messenger once a month, maybe they will want to do it now through the P.A., or through the international community to take to, to be sure that hamas will not Who's use this money uh,
1: yeah.
0: to build to rebuild the, the tunnels and the rockets and everything and i think the hungry people in gaza are not be, are going to be uh, in, in a different situation
2: I, I agree with you i'll tell you let's say our the people who listen to us one thing that, just to be clear regarding the suitcases from qatar the the mechanism that works in the past was that we collecting taxes for the PA, Gaza and the West Bank included, we are giving it to the PA and then the PA are paying, uh, they sending it, the the portion of Gaza, they sending to Hamas. One day in 2000, you know, when they didn't succeed to reconcile Hamas and the PA, Abbas declared that he's not sending the money to Gaza anymore, that's why, we went to the Qataris and asked them if they can assist with it. Why do we need their assistance? Not only to send money to the poor, but since we are not changing the political equation, that means that Hamas is still ruling Gaza. And for us, it's important that there will be a, a, a you know, a very, the governed, they need to govern Gaza. And most of the, uh, public servants in gaza you know teachers um, policemen kindergarten people are working in kindergarten we cannot
0: afford ourselves gaza to collapse exactly. talking about as health long as we about education and we cannot we cannot talk directly exactly. to hamas so the qataris are uh, the, the mediators the third party that is doing the, the hard job and paying them the money the question is and it's what all is going a to be from now on?
2: yeah I mean, Qataris say, I mean, we needed an ATM. It doesn't ma- matter if the ATM goes through Definitely. Ramallah or goes through Qatar. And the fact that it's coming with a suitcase, it's maybe, you know, it's somehow it's uh, it's uh, kind of difficult for us to de- digest, but it was the same thing with the PA. We send the money and yeah. Ham- and, and Abbas was transferring the money now we don't even transfer the money to Gaza. It's all coming from Qatar, so we're like in a better situation. But somehow the Israeli mind cannot accept the fact that money coming through suitcases, even if it's not coming from us, the
0: common Israelis to saying to himself that I finance the rockets. We pay for the rockets they're shooting on us on our civilians, and, and you just explained that it's not uh, so simple, it's, uh, it's a lot so more... Uh... If we
2: want to enter, I mean, we pay for the fact that we don't need to conquer Gaza and govern Gaza at the mm. moment, because we asked the PA to go back to Gaza, and we need to say from 2017 until now, there have been many delegation from the PA entering Gaza, and, and eggs and tomatoes that were thrown at them, that they are not wanted within Gaza. And that's why it didn't work. They tried somehow before that the you know the presidential guard will come Gaza and try to keep the borders crossing and so on. It didn't work, yeah. and, and and that's why, unless we want to govern Gaza or have a ground operation in Gaza, and I'm not saying whether it's the right decision or not, but we need to understand what's the alternative. If we don't have a Palestinian alternative. We pay in order not to govern Gaza, and we we pay for effectively somebody else to effectively govern two million Palestinians um, living in Wait, Gaza. Let, let whether... me
0: take you out for a second yeah. or a moment from Gaza, and <laughs> okay. talk about uh, the Middle East. Okay. And we mm-hmm. until five minutes ago, we were in the middle of an uh, unprecedented honeymoon between oh, nice. Israel and the Arab world. As reflected in the Abraham Accords and other developments, how did this impact the way Arab societies around us saw this latest uh, violence compared to previous rounds? And is the extent and the intensity of the reaction to events on the Temple Mount different than reactions to the conflict with Hamas or to the di- dispute in Sheikh Jirach? And, uh, you know, in, in more simple words, Where did all our supporters in the Arab world, all all the Arab bloggers that that are a a wild fanatics of Bibi Netanyahu, what did they do during these 11 days? So
2: I'll tell you, it it divided, uh, I would say two. Regarding Sheikh Jerusalem, in general, something for the knowledge of everybody. Jerusalem, it's something that unites the Arab and the, the Palestinians. Gaza, it's something that divides the Arab world and the Palestinian. Because of the ruling, there is a debate. Because it's being ruled by a Muslim Brotherhood organization, there is a debate about it. And, and once there is a debate, there's no uh, kind of... you They cannot unite re- around this uh, topic. So as long as it was about Je- Sheikh Jarrah and Al-Aqsa, everybody was united, and we saw even... You know kind of uh criticism about us once it shifted to to gaza and we need to thanks hamas for that the arab world and the palestinian debate was divided in a second they lost kind of air and attention everything shifted so that's the first thing the moment it moved to gaza we heard a lot you know there was many trolls and bought in saudi and in the united arab emirates which completely bashed Hamas, I have to admit. Once they mocked the leader, you know, the foreign leaders of Hamas, Mashal and Haniya, sitting in Doha, many cartoons describe them and, you know, they are living in the fourth season in Doha, uh, going to the gym, riding their uh, Mercedes uh, cars and so on, while their population sitting in Gaza under the rabble. So that was a lot of mocking and a lot of criticism regarding Hamas using, Uh, human shields in order to achieve political gains. So once it shifted to Gaza, a lot of criticism against Hamas in Gaza. Once it was about Jerusalem, then you see them united. And uh, and a little bit, it it started with a big silence and embarrassment, and then it moved to we concern and condemn, and you know how the rhetoric works. but they worked extremely fast to try to calm the things down, because they knew that if it will move back to Jerusalem and to Al-Aqsa, they are in a problematic situation. Support, we could see a lot, I would say, Kuwait leading the support to the Palestinian cause, because half of the parliament in Kuwait is belongs to the Muslim Brotherhood. Not many knows it, but the majority of the parliament in Kuwait belongs to the Muslim Brotherhood. And therefore you saw a lot of solidarity and big funds kind of uh, recruiting money for Sheikh Jarrah and so on. Um, we also saw a, a small kind of protest in Qatar in solidarity, again, with Jerusalem, not with Gaza, but UAE, Saudi Arabia, a lot of, cri- they, they mounted the, the criticism towards Hamas, 100%. And in the uh, yes, past- it's
0: interesting. Uh, so I, I want to to stay in the in the social media uh, world and ask: What role does social media play in the type uh, of conflict we we saw this month? Would it be correct to describe social networks as ammunition in each other's uh, arsenal? And I want to add: uh, Talking about real war. Israel, one Israeli uh, strategic uh, victory is the success to block, destroy, and me- finish uh, the whole underground weapon of Hamas. It started with, uh, with this uh, wall, the, the underground it. wall that we built uh, around Gaza that, uh, that blocked all the, the, the tunnels that, that came into Israel. And the now metro. we yes yeah. no and now we, we bumped the metro uh, mm-hmm. which is the, the tunnels that they they dug uh, uh, under Gaza itself but okay. uh, we did not uh, we, we don't succeed to block the, let's say the the TikTok tunnels so actually yes. my question in the <laughs> short version is who mm-hmm. won the TikTok war so social media owned by the
2: palestinian i have to to say that one one thing that I noticed very interesting that unlike the previous operation, many people in Gaza uh, learned English. They want to deliver the message to the foreign uh, reporter, to the international community, and therefore, unlike in the previous time, I needed to translate it, a lot of tweet and post into Hebrew or into English. These days, every second Twitterati or, or, or uh, 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 activist in Gaza write in English, which was ten times, and that's why you saw the medium it's and amazing. how it exploded on social media. So it facilitates the information easier to the foreign ear and to the international community. Very interesting. It wasn't in the past. So that's first of all. So. They, uh, they knew, they learned English, and they understood that they need to speak in the language, international language. So that's first of all. Second of all, uh, it's a very young generation. And while, you know, people sit in offices, you know, the decision maker sits in offices, the people who do the decision sits in different offices. I call them TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. They own armies and They divided into two groups. One wants to control the narrative and the language. They try to teach the reported what's the correct language to describe what we see. If we call Sheikh Jarrah, you know, a real estate dispute, they will call it ethnical cleansing. Don't call it real estate dispute, call it Ethnical cleansing, and they want to own the language. They want to own the narrative. So that's a word of, they want to frame it for you to understand what do you see in front of you. So that's one group. The other group, and, and you know, in word, where perception and images is everything. You know, in the past, we said that one picture worth a thousand words. So one video sometimes worth, I tell you, more than a thousand words, it's, it's worth thousands of re- new recruitments. So that's the second language of, so- of social media. It helps to mobilize people, to recruit people, go to the street, uh, to organize people, protest and so on. And everything being done in these offices while the decision-maker sits in different, as you said about the parallel discussion. So also the decision-making is completely happens in parallel kind of words because the decision, you know, the decision maker in Israel is in one office, and the people who's doing the demonstration, doing the narrative, doing you know the everything else, mobilizing people in completely different offices. So that's one thing. The other thing that we need to put very much attention is the videos. The videos are probably the most dangerous thing. We took, we saw Facebook and Twitter and Instagram taking a lot of material. Offline and trying to block a lot of content on social media, but what we didn't do, and that's unfortunate, we didn't disrupt the internet because we know how to disrupt. You know, when there's kind of when Iran send weapons to Syria, we know how to take it off. When Iran sending ships into you know into Syria or to Lebanon, we know how to sabotage. So we sabotage weapons and we sabotage uh, sheep, but we don't sabotage very terroristic substance on social media. And when those kids see the videos of their friends bleeding, uh, naturalized, you know, a girl went with a knife for a stabbing event. She was naturalized on on the ground bleeding. The video will be two minutes. A girl on the ground bleeding with no context with nothing, and kids react. They don't ask themselves whether it's fake, maybe it's disinformation, maybe it's from 2014, they react. They see their friends bleeding, attacked by the, you know the, the police in El Aqsa with sound grenades and rubber bullets and so on. They don't understand the context. They don't understand that in a second before that, there were stones in the mosque, that somebody throws stones over on the police. They, they just see people are being attacked in a mask. And then they react to that. And unless people in real time will kind of disrupt the internet within the mosque, we are heading to a very big problem because most of the recruitment, I can tell you that the leaders of the demonstration, most of them, by the way, women this time, never call for a violent uh, uh, events, none of them. And yet we saw a lot of violence and a lot of, of uh, uh, you know within the Arab population in Israel, in Jerusalem and so on. And it's not because the organizers call for something violent, but it's because the kids saw the young population, you know the, the one who went to the street are very young and they saw the videos online without context, just very violent videos, uh, and they react to that, and they wanted revenge. They call for revenge because of those videos. So if one picture worth thousand word, I can tell you that one video on social media in TikTok or Instagram, sometimes worth thousands of kids in the streets. So, And I, and I could t- use
0: uh, at least 1,000 minutes more to, to talk to you about <laughs> it because it's, it's really fascinating and interesting and it's the present and the future, but we are out, out of time. I want to thank you very much Orit Perlo, for this conversation. We thank learned you. a lot, hope to see you back soon. Thank you and Shalom, to Orit. Thank you very
2: much. Bye-bye.
1: I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of the award-winning media news site, El Monitor, where we cover the Middle East with some of the best reporters and columnists anywhere. And I'm excited to announce our new podcast, On the Middle East, where each week I will interview newsmakers from the U.S. and the region about the latest news and trends with additional commentary from our on-the-ground correspondents. Those of you who follow the region know that what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. And to cite another great movie line, every time the U.S. tries to get out, the region pulls us back. Your time is valuable, so let me promise you this. You will learn something, and you will never be bored, because each week we'll be talking with and listening to those leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in this critical and fascinating region. So please subscribe to On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti.
0: Thank you for staying with us. Asking Orit Perlov, uh, who spe- specializes in uh, trends in the Arab society surrounding Israel, especially new media, who won this war is uh, was, was uh, very difficult. Uh, she described for us the, the Ar- reality on the other side of the, of the bombings, uh, especially in uh, the Gaza Strip. She described an army of Gazans. Uh, inside the street that uh, just documented an archive of everything they saw in the streets of what they call massacre of civilians. Uh, they think about the narrative. They call it a genocide by Israel and war crimes. And that They try to control media reporters to influence foreign reporters especially. I asked her uh, uh, what kind of victory they're talking about on the other side. And she said that uh, while Israel have uh, the IDF, the intelligence, the F-16, they have children. So they they document uh, wounded and dead uh, children uh, in the rubble, homeless children, and they use it as weapons. I asked her, uh, do they really think that, that they can win or they won this war? And she said something very interesting. She said that once you survive it, you win it. Uh, they don't have in Gaza, no shelters, sirens, iron dome. Part of the population doesn't have a, 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 even windows because of, of whatever happened in 2014. So if you get out from the rubble alive for you, it's, it's a huge victory. She said that the, the war, this uh, unpredicted war, caught many people in Gaza and in Israel by surprise. People were shocked. Hamas was paying salaries a few days before. Everybody was sure that uh, if there would be violence, it would be very limited to one or two days. Things that we are seeing uh, once in a while, but uh, the, the, the violence that erupted in such a, such a huge magnitude caught many many people in total surprise and uh, she thinks that the the very fact that Hamas shot uh, six rockets on Jerusalem in the day of Jerusalem while Israel was celebrating the the holiday of its capital this is the the, the victory picture maybe of uh, Hamas and while she said uh, when we're dealing with the the clashes between Israel and Hamas Hamas doesn't have a lot of uh, supporters, even among the, the Arab world. When Hamas deals with Jerusalem, or especially the Al Aqsa Mosque, all the, the Arab world is united behind him. And maybe this was the real victory of Hamas after these 11 bloody days. I hope uh, you found it uh, interesting. And I hope to meet you here again uh, next Monday in Al Monitor in Omni Israel. I'm speak from Tel Aviv. Take care.